Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Rima Rattan. This evening, I'm taking a slightly different approach to what we usually do on this show. I'm looking into the history of an idea, and that idea and practice is quarantine. I've chosen to do this for two reasons. First, because I think sometimes the best way to understand the present is by looking at the past, but also because I have a special interest in racism and how it manifests beyond overt physical violence and abuse. This, I think, is the more corrosive type of racism because it's sort of like gaslighting. It's often found in institutional practices that on the one hand seem entirely justified, just like quarantine is understandable in terms of stopping the spread of infectious diseases. But such practices themselves are infected by prejudice, and the disease of racism can reinfect the body politic when the practice is revived. This show then is a case study, and you can decide for yourself what to make of the latest round of quarantine measures we are seeing in Australia after listening. To explore the history of quarantine in Australia, I talked to historian Dr. Peter Hobbit, I'm Peter Hobbins. I'm a historian of science, technology and medicine. And what fascinates me about those fields is the ways in which we create knowledge or epistemology and also the worlds that that scientific knowledge helps make possible or even imaginable. And that's what we sometimes call the ontology of science. So I'm really interested in experiments, in the nature of the generation of knowledge and how that applies to the practical world, whether it be understanding venomous creatures, explaining why aeroplanes crash, or thinking about the consequences of what we understand about disease and how that plays out in quarantine practice. So quarantine is a particular focus of yours. You've written a book on this. Yes, I spent three years working with a team of historians and archaeologists at Sydney's North Head Quarantine Station, which is right at the entrance to Sydney Harbour. Now, we focused on that site, but we looked also at quarantine sites around the world, particularly other Australian quarantine stations and also some of those in the United States. How many are there in Australia and what were their historical use? Every colony of Australia had its own quarantine station established by the 1880s. And by the time of Federation of the Australian Colonies in 1901, there were about a dozen stations set up in the main capital cities or at some of the outpoints. So, for instance, at Thursday Island off Cape York. And the point of these quarantine stations was twofold. One was to help detect any potential infectious diseases that were coming to Australia from overseas. Of course, these were all in the era when the only way you could get to the continent was by ship. And their second purpose was then to actually hold care for and particularly to isolate people who either were infected or were potentially infected to make sure that they didn't enter the broader society until it was certain that they were no longer carrying that infectious disease. What disease outbreaks were the impetus of the creation of these quarantine stations? 
In the 19th century, a lot of the diseases we now think of as infectious weren't considered to be something that you could catch. They weren't seen as being communicable. So there were a whole range, for instance, typhus fever was seen as a disease of filth or dirt. It was seen to track with armies uh, and to be found in prisons and to be seen in basically you know, lower socioeconomic groups. It was seen to be a disease that was created by the living conditions and the morality of a particular class of people. These days, we understand that it's actually an organism that's transmitted by life between human beings and tend to congregate in people who are living in closed and often quite dirty and poorly ventilated conditions. So it's important to understand that in the 19th century, many diseases we now think of as communicable weren't seen in that way. But having said that, particularly in the 1830s, there was a dreaded fear of cholera, which is a diarrhoea disease that can lead to dramatic dehydration, huge amounts of fluid loss and basically death within about 48 hours if you catch it. Now that cholera uh, epidemic effectively became a pandemic. It spread across Asia through the Middle East and reached Europe by about 1830. And so particularly in New South Wales, was a colony at that point, it was a real concern that cholera might come into the colony of New South Wales by ship. So in 1832, a quarantine station site was gazetted. In other words, it was set aside at the entrance to Sydney Harbour. And that's the North Head quarantine station that you mentioned earlier. That's right. Initially, all of North Head, which is a massive area, it was about uh, 600-odd acres, was set aside for the purposes of a quarantine. It was just basically left as vacant ground. I mean, it had had uh, Indigenous inhabitants before that, so that land was taken off them. But it was set aside, and then gradually facilities were established on the site. So initially, the very first quarantine on shore was for smallpox, which is a contagious viral disease. That was one that was understood that you could catch from other people. So the very first quarantine actually on shore at Port North Head was in 1835 and it involved basically erecting a row of tents near the beach where people would come ashore. Gradually in the 1830s and again in the 1850s, in the 1870s and 1880s, more and more permanent facilities were built on the site as well. So uh, accommodation buildings, processing facilities for people and for their luggage, uh, housing for medical staff, cooking facilities, toilets. You know, this range of infrastructure was then set up to actually make it a permanent establishment rather than just the occasional little tent city. So by 1880, you've got lots of them. What happens next? A couple of dramatic things happened through the middle of the 19th century. So the older miasma theory, which basically said that many diseases were not communicable, they couldn't be caught from other people. Miasma theory suggested that it was actually the locality, the place you were in, and to some extent the class of person you were that led to you developing diseases. And so miasma was seen as what were called toxic emanations coming up out of the ground, particularly in swampy and smelly and low-lying areas. And they were seen to actually poison your system and make you ill. Now, by the 1860s, that theory was starting to lose ground to a new theory put forward by a French scientist, Louis Pasteur, that we now call germ theory. He basically said, well, many diseases are actually caused by microorganisms, germs, that can spread from person to person and sometimes from animals to people so that they cause the same basic set of symptoms in each infected individual and then that person has the potential to pass on those germs and cause the disease in somebody else. So this is very much what we think of as the common sense way of understanding infectious diseases now but it was quite a novel idea for most diseases in the middle of the 19th century. So between about 1860 and 1900 but really taking off in the 1880s, germ theory dramatically changed the way that diseases were understood, the 
way they were treated and the way they were prevented well. At the same time, you have a major transition in the way people were coming to the Australian colonies. So the, the heyday of the sailing ship, you know, through the gold rushes of the 1850s and into the immigration waves of the 1860s and 1870s, gradually gave way to steamships. Now, we tend to think, well, what's the difference? You know, it's just another way of coming by sea. There are two major differences about steamships that are really important to thinking about disease and quarantine. The first is that they were much faster and were much more reliable than sailing ships. They didn't need the wind to get them anywhere, so they could steam along at a very steady rate. And they were much quicker than sailing ships. So suddenly people could arrive in Australia much more rapidly than they had even 10 years earlier, say by 1870 or 1880s the transit time from the United Kingdom or from the United States or from Asia was dramatically reduced. But the other thing was steamships required coal, which meant that they had to stop much more often. So they had to pull into ports, load up coal, and then they could steam on their way again. So whereas a sailing ship leaving England in the 1850s would take three to four months to sail non-stop to Sydney or Melbourne or to Hobart, a steamship would take half that time, but it would stop at ports in the Mediterranean, it would stop in Egypt, it would stop around the Indian coast, it would come down through what was then the Netherlands, East Indies, or through Hong Kong, and then stop at various ports around the Australian coastline, so say uh, Townsville and Brisbane before reaching Sydney or Melbourne. Now the point of all of those extra stops was that diseases could come on board much closer to Australia at the same time the ship was travelling a lot faster. So the consequence of all of these changes was that up until the 1870s, you could easily detect any infectious diseases on board because you had three to four months to spot where they were, who they were affecting, how long the disease might be progressing in those individuals and whether you still needed to declare the ship as infected when it reached port. With steamships, you may only be a few days steaming away from a potential place of infection, whether it was in in Port Moresby, whether it was Batavia, which is now called Jakarta, whether it was Hong Kong, whether it was Auckland or uh, places in India. So we were suddenly much closer to the world and we had a much shorter observation period, what's often known as the incubation period for the emergence of infectious diseases to appear in people. The 21st century parallel would be that we are now flying everywhere. So in the current coronavirus outbreak, lots of people left Wuhan before anything was said. Yes, absolutely. And so really from the 1930s, but particularly when air travel started to take off dramatically in the 1950s, you see that uh, there was a real concern amongst quarantine authorities that traditional barrier, that traditional time period of waiting for a ship to move from one port to the other that gave you a chance to see whether somebody was developing symptoms and to see whether that disease might be spreading amongst other passengers or crew, that vanished and suddenly you were only 12 or 24 or 36 or 48 hours flying time from just about any part of the world to reach Australia. So the old idea of being able to spot diseases before they came into the country really faded away and that led to another major change in quarantine practice from the 1950s. In fact, you know, from, from about 1950, there were very few formal quarantines in Australia of any large scale, large number of people. Is that because there were no outbreaks or...? No, there were still infectious diseases occurring around the world. The point was that people were often coming now in smaller groups because they were coming on aeroplanes rather than on large ships. But also, once they'd arrived, 
that were already in the community. They'd landed at the airport and unless they were picked up by quarantine authorities at Sydney or Melbourne Airport, they would actually be out in the community sometimes before the disease would be spotted. So then there would be, we'd have to actually, health authorities would have to go out into the community and find those people and their contacts and make sure the infection hadn't spread then. So it's not that the idea of quarantine had faded away, it's simply that the technology of people arriving in Australia had sort of leapfrogged it, it had actually gone over that safety interval. Quarantine as it was used in the 19th century, was that effective? Yes and no. It was reasonably effective at keeping out a lot of infections for a long time. So smallpox, for instance, which is a very nasty viral disease, it basically leads to patients having an appearance that's a little bit like a really bad rash of pimples, but they also get a high fever and a sore throat and headaches. It can actually kill between you know, 1 and 30% of infected patients, depending on the particular the severity of that particular outbreak. So it's highly infectious, it can be extremely deadly, and it left survivors with some really nasty scarring on their bodies as well. So it was a really loathsome, dreaded disease through the 19th century and into the 20th century. Its incubation period is often sort of 7 to 10 days. So that's basically the period from which people contract the disease to when they start showing any symptoms and they can actually start passing on the disease before they become symptomatic and then afterwards as well. So there's a period though there where you can see that somebody has smallpox and that they're potentially infectious and that they need to be isolated. Now quarantine in Australia helped to keep smallpox out of the colonies for several decades basically they could spot on a, on a three to four month sailing voyage you would spot who had smallpox you could isolate them you would throw the corpses overboard or give them a burial at sea and you could hopefully contain the outbreak but if you didn't then at least it would be declared when you got to quarantine in Sydney. Unfortunately by the 1870s and into the 1880s smallpox did come ashore either it wasn't detected on board the ship or that it was detected on board the ship but the captain didn't actually declare that they had cases on board because they were still operating a commercial missile and they wanted to get in and unload their cargo and their passengers. And you see the same pattern with many other infectious diseases. So whooping cough came into the colony in 18... So the colony of New South Wales into 18... In 1828, you see diphtheria, you see scarlet fever came in about 1840, 1841. Influenza uh, was also coming into the colony in the 1820s and again periodically through the 19th century as well. And bubonic plague came ashore in Sydney in 1900 and then also at several other places along the coast too. So in each case, quarantine had helped keep these diseases out on several arrivals, but for various reasons, often because people were maybe not displaying characteristic symptoms and weren't being detected early enough. The diseases ultimately circumvented quarantine. So there was a real concern in the 1860s and 1870s that maybe quarantine was no longer the most effective way of managing infectious diseases. And so in many parts of the world, particularly in Europe, quarantine facilities were actually being dismantled in the 1870s, whereas in Australia, they were actually being erected uh, more and more frequently in the 1880s and more investment was put into them precisely to actually help keep the continent as free from further disease uh, imports as possible. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
So last week, or perhaps the week before, just as the coronavirus outbreak was taking over our news feeds, an eminent historian of medicine and, and science in the US wrote a column about quarantine. He brought up doubt about its effectiveness. But one of the things he mentioned quite casually and didn't really extrapolate was that there was this underlying racism in quarantine practices as well in the US. Is there something similar in Australia as well? Quarantine is never just about stopping infectious diseases entering a, you know, a place free from them. There's always politics involved and there's always social forces involved as well. And that's not always a top-down policy. I mean, we tend to think that quarantine must be official government policy and it's imposed rigidly across everybody. Well, sometimes that's the case, but sometimes that's not the case as well. So to answer your question, yes. Uh, in Historically, there were often seen to be associations between particular types of people and particular types of disease. And sometimes those types were racial, sometimes they were social, sometimes they were class, they were even potentially gender-based as well. So one of the classic examples is smallpox, the disease I mentioned earlier. Until the 1880s, smallpox arrived primarily from the United Kingdom and from the United States into the Australian colonies. So it was coming either across the Indian Ocean or across the Pacific Ocean uh, and then being held at these quarantine stations. Suddenly, about 1880, smallpox starts to be seen as an Asiatic disease. Now, in the terminology of the period, Asiatic didn't just mean from East or Southeast Asia. Uh, it also meant uh, India and uh, the Netherlands East Indies as well. So Asiatic broadly meant what we'd now call Indian and Asian populations. And there was seen to be an association of smallpox with people from that part of the world, that they were somehow natural carriers of the disease, that the places where they lived were natural origins of smallpox. Even just several years earlier, hardly any cases of smallpox had come from that part of the world. And so by federation and the turn of the 20th century, this is the era now of the white Australia policy, you see that regularly Chinese immigrants, travellers and sailors in particular were discriminated against as potential carriers of smallpox and also of the other disease that had just arrived in Australia at that time, which was bubonic plague. Now, when you go back and look at the evidence, and also some of the commentators at the time also said this, there was no clear association to say, well, the disease had been carried by or had arisen from the practices of Chinese people coming to or living in Australia at that time. So there was no scientific basis really for this belief. But the cultural belief was very strong and it was very specific. It came in around 1879-1880. Bang, it was really important and it was there. And I think a lot of it tied in not so much with disease but with labour and the concern about a growing number of Chinese immigrants coming into the Australian colonies who were seen to be undercutting the wages and the working conditions of the traditionally white settlers who'd been, you know, by that stage had been coming to Australia for about a century. So there was a social concern about a particular group of people coming to the country, which then translated into a political concern. And you start to see then quarantine practice and immigration practice changing so that it's preferentially antagonising or excluding particularly Chinese people, but also more broadly that group of Asiatics. So it could have included Japanese and Indian and Netherlands East Indies, what we now call Indonesian travellers to Australia as well. So basically quarantine becomes a fig leaf for racist practices at that, at that juncture. It was a very politically acceptable 
approach at the time because nobody wanted to be responsible for bringing a disease as loathsome as smallpox or a disease as incredibly deadly as bubonic plague into the country. And so if you could find a group to demonise and to say, well, these people are the natural carriers of this disease, it's their filthy practices, it's their low standards of living, it's their racial makeup that makes them particularly susceptible to bringing it into tainting our population, of course, our meaning white Australian at that time, then that had a lot of political currency in that moment of federation and that the first several decades of the Commonwealth of Australia. And it's not just in Australia. You see the same thing happening in the United States, particularly uh, on the western coast, Angel Island Quarantine Station in San Francisco Harbour. You see uh, see it both on the quarantine station and in San Francisco City itself, where bubonic plague and smallpox in particular were seen as quintessentially Asian diseases that were coming to, you know, the pure white uh, West, which of course you know, was never pure white because there were plenty of uh, Indigenous Americans and uh, Mexican Americans there before the white settlement of the West Coast of the United States. But it's in this period you start to see that association with plague in particular, and that helps Western authorities, white authorities, crack down on Chinatown and actually inspect Chinese residents, Chinese immigrants, to destroy their neighbourhoods, to interfere in their trade practices, all under the rubric of disease control, but of course it's social control as well. And I just want to emphasise again that, yes, this is politics and it's government policy, but of course a large number of white residents in that society were also buying into this. They were also buying into the prejudices and into the exclusive practices. So it wasn't simply a top-down approach. It was actually something that was often pushed from the bottom up, adopted at the top, and then had real social currency for several decades. Wow, so there's this economic anxiety within society. It sort of manifests itself with this kind of uh, linking certain races with diseases and it sort of filters up, as it were, to policy. Yes, yes. And of course, that's classic populist politics. There's no surprise in that. I think we just tend to think that surely something as scientific and sensible as quarantine would be above that sort of uh, you know, vernacular politics, the everyday politics and the ways in which community leaders respond to the concerns of their community. We think, well, surely the science will trump those sorts of fears and that sort of alarm. But no, historically, I would say not. But I think we, yeah, it is always more complex than that as well. It's never just about pure racism and about pure exclusion. So to give you another example, in the 1930s, a very popular New Zealand ocean liner called the Arangi sailed into Sydney Harbour and there were several cases of smallpox on board. Now, the smallpox was actually brought by young Australian men who'd been doing a tour of the United States and Canada and they'd probably picked up smallpox in Vancouver and were bringing it back across the Pacific into Sydney. So there was no hint that any of the victims or anybody spreading it was Asian in origin. However, on board that ship, there was an Indian doctor and his Syrian wife, and there were several other Chinese members of crew, uh, as well as some uh, Fijian missionaries on board. Now, when the ship went into quarantine at North Head Quarantine Station, everybody was taken off the ship. They were put into accommodation at, at North Head, and there was this concern. What do we do with this Indian doctor and his Syrian wife? They're alien. In, in the terminology of the time, they're alien. They're not of a white British race. They should therefore have gone into the specific Asiatics dormitory and it was very much a dormitory, you know, three three level bunks. You basically were packing people into that. But he was a doctor, he was a medical doctor. So he was put in the first class accommodation because he'd paid for a first class ticket on the ship. Now, the quarantine authorities allowed this doctor these privileges because 
they were saying, well, he's a highly qualified practitioner, he's paid for first-class ticket, he should be in the first-class compound. But it was some of the other fellow white passengers, particularly an Australian golfer and an American golfer who, were, who was visiting Australia at the time, they kicked up a huge fuss saying, well, this is dreadful. How can we have these coloured people sharing accommodation and bathroom facilities with us white folks? So, again, I guess it's just I want to say that it's always complicated, that the government agents were the ones allowing these non-white people into the facilities that were nominally for white arrival, but it was the fellow passengers who were the ones who had the most vehement discrimination. It's um, the example you gave earlier about uh, one of the diseases reaching one of the colonies of Australia because the captain didn't declare it because for, for commercial reasons. It's, yes. It, people never do one thing. People don't do things for purely one reason. No, that's right. And I think, you know, we all have our own imperatives. You know, we can't live our lives scientifically. We're always striking a balance between our own self-interest, the interest of those around us, you know, our loved ones and families, our local community, the particular organisations or professional groups we belong to, often then into, uh, you know, nations. What do nations have to do with science? I mean, you think about it, you know, Australia declares a quarantine because of a disease that's been first observed in China. You know, we know that it's not a Chinese disease and we know that Australia is not immune from that disease. China and Australia are political entities. They're not biological populations. And yet we accept that quarantine policy is something that has to play out at a national level because they're the systems of government that we choose to have. It's even more absurd than that, isn't it? Because we're going to now exclude people who don't have an Australian passport. The virus is not going to know what passport you hold. But that also then comes down to the issue of allocation of resources and taxpayers' money as well. That if you are protected by an Australian passport, it doesn't protect you from the disease, but it does entitle you to a certain level of care as an Australian taxpayer under our health system, which again is a national choice that we make. You know, as a society, we elect governments that deliver a particular sort of health service. And so part of buying into that through our tax dollars is buying into what being Australians privileges us to access. So there are ways, again, in which the disease itself doesn't discriminate by passport, but the responses to disease for individuals and for their families and communities are very much determined by social and political aspects like citizenship. A question that came up after my interview with Dr. Hobbins was whether the current instances of racism against people of East Asian appearance we are hearing about are resonances of the idea that arose in the 19th century without medical foundation of some diseases being Asiatic, as Peter described earlier. He said there's still a similar rhetoric regarding the origins, that is a focus on dietary choices, sanitary standards and living conditions that's described as cultural but that's overlaid with racial and geographical assumptions. One still sees assumptions that wearing face masks to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases is an Asian practice rather than a universal medical response, he added. And to come back to my opening remarks about racism becoming embedded in certain institutional practices and rearing up again when the practice is revived, consider what Dr. Hobbins mentioned about how quarantine started to acquire racist overtones in response to Chinese labourers coming into Australia in the late 19th century and the constant refrains we've been hearing about China's economic rise this century. That's all we have time for today. Hopefully we can revisit some of these ideas again as the year progresses. One of my great joys in doing this show is finding new music by asking guests to nominate the song for the show to end with. Ideally one that's thematic related, and this one chosen by Peter is quite fun. Feel free to sway along to Bing Crosby and the Andrews sisters crooning Don't Fence Me In. Thank you.
land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze and listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you, please, don't fence me in. Just turn me loose. Let me straddle my old saddle underneath the western sky. On my cayuse, let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences and gaze at the moon till I lose my senses and I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me. of land under starry skies don't fence me in let me ride through the wide country that I love don't fence me in let me be by myself in the evening breeze and listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever, but I ask you, please, don't fence me in. Just turn me loose. Let me straddle my old saddle underneath the western skies. On my cayuse, let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. ba 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 I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences And gaze at the moon till I lose my senses And I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences Don't 